and welcome to the Big Five podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Rippon, and today my guest is Dr. Andrew McNeil. Andrew is a social psychologist and an assistant professor in psychology, and Andrew has been based at Northumbria University for the past 10 years. However, Andrew has recently taken up a new post at Queen's University in Belfast. So on today's episode, I take a trip down memory lane with Andrew, where he reflects on some of his key milestones during his time at Northumbria University. And Andrew also talks through some of his research projects that have focused on victimhood, the way in which people express their views on social media, and also health monitoring systems. This episode really does illustrate an academic's journey from completing a PhD, progressing on to postdoctoral positions, and then obtaining a lectureship. So without further ado, here is Dr. Andrew McNeil. Thank you very much for having me in the podcast, Daniel. So before we talk about um, your time here at Northumbria University, uh, before you came here, you did a PhD at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, your PhD was on rhetoric and victimhood in Northern Ireland. So first of all, what is victimhood? It's a very good question, because when you look at the research around victimhood, it's talked about in different ways. Um, and probably if you go and search for literature on victimhood, you'll see that a lot of it is on the experience of violence. Um, and it's about interpersonal victimhood. So if someone's attacked when they're walking down the street, that will be an experience of them becoming a victim. And we would talk about their experience as victimhood. But from my point of view, what I was interested in was not necessarily the individual experience of victimhood, but how whole groups can start to think of themselves as being victims. And that was particularly relevant for me growing up in Northern Ireland, where it wasn't just individuals that thought about themselves as being victims of the conflict, but you've got whole groups of people and they would say that we've been victims in this conflict. We've suffered because of this. And they might not have had any direct experience of it, but because of their sense of belonging with a group that they perceived to have suffered, then we had this experience of group or collective victimhood. And so that was what I was really interested in from my uh, PhD research. Okay, so in terms of group or collective victimhood, so is this related to inclusive victimhood? So yeah, what we discovered when we started um, looking at how people were talking about their experience of group or collective victimhood was that people talked about it in different ways. Sometimes you would get people and they would talk about how their experience of victimhood was unique, that other people had not suffered the same way as they had. But then you had other groups of people and they were saying that their experience of victimhood was paralleled by the experience of other groups, whether in the local context or more broadly across the world. So that sense of inclusive victimhood was when groups would say, we've suffered similarly to say Israelis or Palestinians, and they would draw parallels between their suffering and the suffering of another group. And sometimes they did that uh, in order to highlight their own suffering. And sometimes they did that in order to 
draw attention to the sufferings of other groups. So the reasons why people would highlight the similarities, the inclusivity with other groups of victims really depend on what they were trying to achieve um, when talking to other people. Right, okay. So so what is competitive victimhood? Mm. So yeah, competitive victimhood would be almost the flip side of that inclusive yeah. victimhood. Okay. So that inclusive victimhood is when you're saying that your victimhood is very similar to other people's, but competitive victimhood is when you start to compete over who's suffered the most. Mm. And you would see this a lot in Northern Ireland, where one group would say, you know, we've suffered more than the other side. And the other side would say, no, we've suffered more. Mm. And this became, um, I think to some extent still is, a way of groups trying to vie for resources particularly after the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, where there was a lot of attention paid to how to address the problems of the past. Mm. It became political currency to highlight the suffering of your group, because the more that you could portray your group as suffering, then the more entitled you would be to some kind of redress in in some schemes to actually try and resolve the conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to be cynical about the suffering of certain groups. It's just to highlight the ways in which victimhood began to be used as Northern Ireland was moving into a post-conflict settlement. Mm. It's so, because yeah, it's interesting about that concept of inclusive victimhood, but um, just reading through some of your work, you've done work on intergroup conflict and there's an indication in some of your work that the, the, there's a relation between victimhood and intergroup conflict. So how does intergroup conflict kind of manifest, especially when there's, there's such concepts as things like inclusive victimhood? Yeah, I think obviously one of the most politically salient examples of intergroup conflict at the moment is the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. And I think victimhood is a very helpful angle for thinking about the experience of both of those groups. I've done some research looking at the experience of Israelis and their sense of having been victims of, of conflict and violence in the past. And that can lead to different ways of thinking about victimhood. Um, so some of the research that I've done with Noah Shori Eyal is looking at how Israelis think about their, their group suffering. And for some of them, there's a sense of what we refer to as perpetual in-group victimhood orientation, whereby they feel that they are always the victim. Mm -hmm. And that becomes then a lens through which they look at the world and see a lot of threat around them. And for others, that becomes a fear of victimizing and it, there becomes a fear that we would not let happen to others what has happened to us. Mm. And so we were very interested in exploring how the, the actual experience of victimhood doesn't determine what then happens. Mm -hmm. It's what you make of your victimhood shapes, how you then respond to the circumstances that surround you. Because if you go through this experience of suffering, it can either make you say, that's never going to happen to me again, and I'm going to do everything to stop it. Or it can make you say, I don't want that to happen to anyone else. And you actually 
expend a lot of effort to actually prevent that from happening again. Mm. Um, so that's just some of the work that I've been interested in exploring. And it shows how victimhood then gets mobilized in the present and becomes a lens through looking at the present, which then affects how we actually move forward into the future. I, I think you see the same thing in Northern Ireland as well, where you've mm. got different groups of victims and their ways of thinking about victimhood affects how willing they are to work with the other side moving forward. Mm. So what, what spiked your interest in this area of victimhood? I think for me, it was just growing up in Northern Ireland and I was always very interested in the dynamics of the political situation there. But it was, I think, primarily when I was doing my undergraduate dissertation, my supervisor, Chris Coors, he was doing some research on victimhood at that stage. And he said to me, look, this is a very interesting new area of research, thinking about how people appraise or think about or construct their victimhood. Why don't you do some research in this area? So I went away, did some reading on it. I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. And it helped me then understand the situation of Northern Ireland a little bit better. And on the basis of that, after doing my undergraduate dissertation, I thought to myself, I would actually love to pursue this further in a PhD project. And mm. so one thing led to another and did a PhD project on it. So did you take that idea for your PhD to your PhD supervisor? Or was that a programme research that was already up and running? So I took that directly to my PhD supervisor. Well, it started out in quite a different form because I was thinking about emotions in conflict and thinking about how emotions can actually be um, regulated in conflict, which is something that one of my PhD students is actually exploring at the minute and some very interesting work. But... Um, as I talked more with my PhD supervisor, Vanthi Lyons and Sam Pearson, they thought that it would be interesting to explore how people talk about their victimhood. Mm. And I wasn't very familiar with rhetorical psychology or discursive psychology, or to be honest, qualitative psychology an awful lot at that stage. But they were quite keen and encouraging me to pursue that route. And the more I dug into it, the more I thought, this is really interesting. And so that shaped the trajectory, not only of my PhD, but also the trajectory of my career. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned there you've got an interest in discursive psychology. And I know that through the, your, your teaching at Northumbria University and, and the Advanced Research Skills module. So given your interest in discursive psychology, how is victimhood conveyed in political manifestos? That's a very interesting question, uh, because this is one of the areas that I explored in my PhD. Uh, we were interested in how victimhood gets talked about in society. And it gets talked about in society in various different contexts. But one of the contexts that I was interested in was how political parties talked about it. And so if you want to understand what political parties say, then the best thing to do is to look at their political manifestos. What promises do they make? Northern Ireland has a very interesting resource called the Linen Hall Library. And the Linen Hall Library is a private library in the centre of Belfast. And they have stored and archived political manifestos for a very long time. I'm not sure exactly when it starts, but they've stored all the political manifestos. And so I took myself off to the Linen Hall Library with my camera and I took photographs of uh, not all of the manifestos, um, but a large amount of those manifestos. 
um, right up to the present day and then going back before 1998. 1998 obviously was the Good Friday Agreement when both sides in Northern Ireland sat down and came to a sort of agreement with how to move forward and a political settlement. And so that was the transition point in Northern Ireland where things started to become a bit more peaceful. Mm. Now, what I was interested in was how do these political manifestos talk about victimhood and when do they start talking about it? And so I started digging through these manifestos and what I discovered interestingly was that prior to 1998, there is little or no mention of victimhood in these political manifestos. And that signaled for me that there was something about the, the settlement of 1998 that changed the way people talked about victimhood. So prior to 1998, there was a live conflict situation and in a live conflict situation, it seemed like victimhood didn't have much political currency. You wanted to portray your side as strong. You didn't want to talk about your suffering as much. You wanted to talk about how you were strong, how you were going to achieve what the country needed and presenting this really strong face. After 1998, that changes because yes, you're wanting to portray strength, but you're also wanting to demonstrate that you have been most badly affected by the conflict and that you are going to look after the people who have suffered best. Mm -hmm. And so victimhood then becomes political currency where not only you're talking about the suffering of your group, but you're also talking about how you're going to help those victims that have suffered and how you're going to make sure that they get the best support afterwards. And so I think for me, looking at political manifestos was an interesting way of seeing the temporal changes in how people talked about victimhood and just seeing that progress of how discourse about victimhood changed over the course of the conflict and then into the post-conflict era as well. And so I think for researchers who are interested in how, how what people say changes over time, Archival sources such as political manifestos and newspapers are incredibly useful because it gives us a window into how things change over time and not just a single snapshot in time like we often do in our research. Mm, that's interesting. Have you got any examples of how language actually did change in political manifestos but pre-1998 to post-1998? So I think for me, the biggest example is just the use of this term victim. Um, right. Because prior to 1998, it didn't actually feature very much, if at all. Okay. And after 1998, then it does start to feature as something which people are talking about. Because it's suddenly on the agenda as something which is significant, that's got political currency. Right. Okay. And obviously, you finished your PhD in 2013. Mm -hmm. Have you continued this program of research in victimhoods? Yes, I've continued to be really interested in the, ex the experience of victimhood and how people talk about it. Um, and that continues right up to the present day where I'm looking at how people's experiences of victimhood in the sense of forced immigration affect how they then treat immigrants. Mm. And so that's some recent work that I've been exploring. Just to, again, think about how people's experience of suffering shapes how they treat other people, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. And that's interesting to explore what actually makes the difference between people that will choose to become more pro-social as a result of their suffering mm. and people that will become more 
exclusive and competitive in the way that they think about their suffering. Mm. It doesn't. Do, do you find that with that in mind, people be, can become more co-social towards people who they feel are fellow victims, that's so that kind of inclusive victimhood, yeah. but then become less co-social to those who they feel that are the, the oppressors or yeah. members of the outgroup. Absolutely. And so some of the research that I've done with Johanna Volhardt is exploring selective inclusive victimhood, because the most pro-social outcome of an experience of victimhood would would be a situation where you look at the suffering of other people across the world and you become moved by their suffering and you want to relieve their suffering mm. from all kinds of backgrounds. That would be a kind of universal inclusive victimhood. Mm. But equally, people can become quite strategic in who they include in their circle of victims. And you start to include the people that you most like. You start to include the people whose affiliation with you would make your group look best. So obviously the purpose of this show today was to take a trip down memory lane of your time here at Northumbria University. So um, how did you arrive at Northumbria University? What led you here? So after I finished my PhD, I was looking for a job and I applied for a whole range of different jobs, as many PhD students do. But I saw one at Northumbria University. And at that stage, I didn't really know an awful lot about Northumbria University, but it looked like a very interesting project. And so I put in an application and to my great surprise, I got accepted onto this postdoctoral position with Professor Pam Briggs. And this was a, a project exploring how people talked about swine flu, H1N1, on Twitter um, during the 2009-2010 pandemic. And this was a really nice project because we were working quite closely with Public Health England, which I don't think is in existence anymore. And we were working quite closely alongside them with various other partners down in London and other parts of the country. And we wanted to understand how did people talk about the pandemic? How did they talk about vaccines and antivirals on this new social media platform, Twitter? And how we could use that to understand future pandemic responses. Which is interesting because when I was doing that research, I thought to myself, this is an academic exercise. There's probably not going to be another pandemic anytime soon. I didn't expect there to be um, another major pandemic so soon and much worse than mm. the swine flu pandemic. So that was really interesting. And the research that I did on that is now cited more than I ever expected precisely because it became relevant. And I think it's just an indication that sometimes we do research and we think to ourselves, this is just a little bit obscure. Nobody's going to find this useful. And then through one circumstance or another, we actually find out that our, our research, which you, we thought wasn't terribly helpful, actually proves to be quite useful in subsequent years. Mm. So, so, so the work with Professor Pam Briggs was how social media platforms such as Twitter or yeah. X mm -hmm. now it is um is used to um for public health mm -hmm. communications. Um so obviously 
social media platforms are accessible or used by both healthcare professionals and lay people or yeah. non-experts in healthcare. Do you think social media platforms such as Twitter can be a good source of evidence-based healthcare advice? Well, I think they can be. Okay. And I think when you look at the number of prominent experts on platforms like Twitter, or, or X as it's now called, as you say, um, there, there is a wealth of very useful information available. The problem uh, with social media platforms is that everyone's voice becomes equal on these platforms. And so alongside someone who's an expert is someone who's just spent half an hour on Wikipedia or even worse, delving into some conspiracy theory websites and they'll come out of the woodwork and post their views and opinions on Twitter and they get posted right side by side alongside the views of experts. Uh, and that then becomes a problem, not just on Twitter, but on other social media platforms of actually trying to filter through what's helpful information, what's valuable information mm. and what's potentially misleading. Yeah, because I, I, on Twitter, obviously, people retweet yeah. kind of public health communications. Uh, in your research, do you find that people tend to retweet um, reliable sources of uh, information, such as from like the NHS or... Well, I think in the UK, we've got a real advantage because we've got a fairly trusted health service. Most of us know people that work in the NHS. And that means that we've actually got quite high levels of trust in the information that comes out of our health service. Mm. So when we looked at the swine flu pandemic, while we did see some misinformation, particularly coming from the United States, and some people that have got concerns about vaccines and antivirals, the predominant sources of information were through public health bodies, whether that was through Public Health England, through Department of Health, or uh, through the NHS. And people were actually drawing heavily on those sources to get their information. Mm. And I think that just draws attention to the fact that in different parts of the world there are different political contexts different levels of trust in in government and in health services and it changes from from one period of time to another because i think when it got to the the pandemic most recently um we we saw less trust in public health bodies for a variety of different reasons. But certainly in 2009, 2010, there was a lot of public trust. Mm. Have you continued this line of research? Like following your postdoc with Professor Pam Briggs? Yeah, to some extent we've continued that research looking at how people talk about health information on Twitter. Some recent inf some recent work that I've been doing with Santosh Vijaykumar here in the department is work looking at how different scientific communities talk about pandemics mm. um, and so we were interested in two scientific communities there was the Great Barrington Declaration and the John Snow Memo who had got different perspectives on how to deal with the pandemic and we wanted to understand how they were talking to each other on Twitter and our concern is that a discourse on social media platforms can get very heated and can generate more heat than light and we were interested in how these groups start to avoid talking to one another and mm. become little silos or echo chambers. 
And so that's work that's continuing at the minute. We're continuing to write that up just to explore how these different communities, instead of actually engaging with one another, might actually withdraw into separate communities with their own followers and actually refuse to engage with the tangible issues on the other side. Right, okay. So that's something that we're still continuing to look at. The big problem is that platforms like X or Twitter basically shut down their access to data for academics. So a lot of that research has to to conclude and grind to hold. Right. Okay. Um, so following on from your work with um, Pam Briggs, which is some of its ongoing, um, you commenced another postdoc here at Northumbria mm -hmm. University with Professor Lynn Coventry. Mm -hmm. And this was on pervasive health mm -hmm. monitoring systems. So what are pervasive health monitoring systems? So a pervasive health monitoring system is a system which gathers lots of data about you pervasively in the background without you really noticing. Lots of people wear smartwatches, for example, which gather information about your heart rates, gathers information about your physical activity, and essentially they're a, they're a small example of a pervasive health monitoring system. It's, it's always there working in the background. But we were interested in how we could use a system like that there to understand the health of older adults. We, we explored the idea of an assisted walker that older adults could use. They could perhaps go shopping with it, they could perhaps take it around a museum, but pervasively in the background, it will be gathering information about their health. Um, it will be gathering information about their gait, mm -hmm. about the speed at which they were walking, about uh, who they were with. And it would then use this information to develop a profile of the physical and social health of the older adults that are actually using this system. Mm -hmm. So potentially some adults could take this home if they needed to use it. But for others, they might just use it part of the time. They'll be constantly gathering information in the background about the health of these participants. Mm -hmm. um, and so pervasive health monitoring systems are interesting objective study precisely because they gather so much information. And it's interesting then to explore what, what could we use this information for? How useful could it be? Yeah. I remember that, that line of work got quite a bit of media attention because I think that might have been around about the time when I started here okay. and I yeah. saw all the cameras and I was like who's this yes. guy walking down I the know. corridor it's Dr Andrew McNeil being I interviewed know. I know we were on ITV time tease talking about our work yeah so <clears throat> in terms of pervasive health monitoring systems are, are there any issues that can arise with this type of, of monitoring physical health in, in older adults? I think one of the big concerns is privacy, because if you're sharing all of this information with people, you want to understand what's going to happen with that. Mm. So for example, if this system discovers that you are at high risk of falls, mm. is that going to affect your life insurance premiums? Is this going to affect the willingness of healthcare providers to actually um, support your healthcare, and so it opens up all these kinds of questions of who gets to see this information and as a psychologist we're interested in privacy concerns that people have mm -hmm. obviously there are legal concerns around that but the legal concerns weren't so much our concern so much as the psychological concerns that people have around privacy 
And so we did a series of interviews and focus groups with older adults, getting them to think about the privacy concerns that they might face. And some of the concerns were really quite interesting. They spoke about how they would be concerned about their family finding out about their declining health because they don't want their families to worry. And this is a common concern amongst older adults because even though they might be aware of their declining health, they don't necessarily want to cause any undue stress or concern to other people. So they, they like to keep that kind of information private to themselves. Mm. But one of the very interesting things that we noticed was that sometimes it was almost like they wanted privacy from their own information for themselves, those aspects of their own declining health that they didn't want to know about. They were thinking to themselves, I'm old, I'm not getting any healthier. Do I really want to be reminded constantly that I'm getting more frail, that I'm more likely to fall? Mm -hmm. And so this became um, another area in which participants talked about how they, they actually didn't want that information shared with them. And so there opens up this range of concerns about who gets to see the information from a pervasive health monitoring system that are really relevant to psychologists. Mm. And so this was something that we explored and wrote a couple of papers on. And it was really quite interesting. Yeah. It's quite an eclectic program of research projects. It is very eclectic. Victimhood, <laughs> the dissemination of public health Absolutely. advice on social media and also pervasive health and yeah. monitoring systems. Uh, have you continued that work with, with Lynn Coventry at all? I haven't continued that work uh, in recent years, not because I don't want to, but just because my research interests have kind of revolved back to more interest in, in conflict. But what that research opened up for me was the importance of psychology in human-computer interaction. Mm. Human-computer interaction refers to any of the ways in which humans and computers inter actually interact with each other, whether that's robotic technology, pervasive health monitoring technology, social media platforms. Mm. And a lot of our psychology graduates go out into the world thinking how they're potentially going to be a, a professional psychologist. And I think one of the things that has become clear to me that I try to emphasise to students is that the skills they have developed in doing research and trying to understand human thinking behaviour are relevant in a variety of contexts. And HCI, human-computer interaction, is one of those contexts where psychologists are so valuable. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about quantitative methods, it's also about qualitative methods, being able to interview people and say, when you're using this technology, what are your concerns? Mm -hmm. When you're using this social media platform, what are you looking for? What kind of information are you getting? Mm -hmm. And so that HCI psychology research area is something which continues to be something which I want to explore further because even in something like intergroup conflict, a lot of our information about conflict and a lot of our experience of conflict now is mediated through technology. Mm -hmm. And so one of the areas that I want to come back to is how we can actually understand the role of technology in conflict and understand how technology can be used in order to alleviate conflict and produce more peaceful societies as well. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question on that in a moment, but when did you get your lectureship at Northumbria University? 
because that was 2018, so I think I was, I came here in 2013, so for about five years I worked as a postdoc, mm. and then for the past five years I've been lecturer, and then senior lecturer, and then assistant professor. Yeah, because in terms of your teaching at, at Northumbria here, um, you teach uh, advanced research skills, and you teach um, level five undergraduate students mm -hmm. how to apply the principles of discursive Mm -hmm. psychology um and and you mentioned earlier before your phd that you weren't necessarily a qualitative mm. researcher so um why do you think it's important to teach undergraduate students how to apply qualitative research to find out more about the human mind and experience yeah i think that's really important because there are there are some um, parts of the world where psychology research is almost exclusively focused on quantitative research methods. And I think that's a very reductionistic way of thinking about human beings, that we can reduce our behaviour, reduce research on our thinking to either survey methods uh, and ultimately reduce everything down to a series of numbers where we're trying to predict what people will do. Because People explain their experiences through words. People interpret their experiences through words. People justify themselves through words. People interact through words. And you cannot understand human behaviour adequately and human experience adequately without talking to people or without listening to people. Mm. And so for me, one of the things that I've tried to do in level five labs is get students to think about how talk is really important for social interaction. And so we get students to look at videos of family mealtime interactions, very ordinary, everyday occurrence. And we deliberately chose something which was mundane in order to get them thinking about how mundane aspects of everyday life can be understood psychologically. Mm. and how talk is hugely important. So we get students to look at how children refuse to eat food and explore how at a very young age children are able to produce quite sophisticated reasons for not eating food. It's not the kind of thing that's going to be terribly effective using survey methods. Okay, you give surveys to parents and say, parents, what reasons do children give for not eating their foods? But you're not always going to be able to remember that. Mm. Very effective is just being able to look at a natural video, explore the reasons that children give, and explore how parents then respond to that, and look at the negotiation backwards and forwards between very young children and parents to see how they negotiate these dynamics around who gets to call the shots about what food should be eaten. Mm -hmm. And it's just a way of exploring actual human behaviour um, without having to resort to numbers or experiments or surveys. Not that those aren't useful, but words are a core aspect of our experience and interaction. Yeah, I kind of um, follow suit in that kind of philosophy of um, using a mixed methods approach mm -hmm. in, the, in the field of psychology. There's a time to use quantitative research methods, mm -hmm. but then there's also a time to kind of answer research questions using qualitative method, mm -hmm. me methods. How are we doing for time? Okay, because you mentioned there the importance of words mm -hmm. as data 
right. in psychology. But you you also teach students how to apply and understand the principles of Jeffersonian transcription mm -hmm. too, which the, yeah. takes qualitative data analysis to another level. Could you just explain a little bit about what we mean by Jeffersonian transcription? Yeah, so we call it Jeffersonian transcription after the the researcher he he kind of pioneered the approach, Gail Jefferson. And she was busy working on trying to understand conversations and she noticed that our conversations are not just made up of the words that we say, but how we actually say them. And she has introduced a standardised way of actually taking the ways that people talk and putting it down in written form on a page. Sometimes the, the intakes of breath that we take are significant. If I take a sharp intake of breath, it probably means that I'm cueing you that I'm going to say something. Even if you're in mid-flow and I take an intake of breath, that's your cue to be attentive to the fact that I'm wanting to speak. And it's little features like that that we that we notice in our interactions with other people. They get lost in transcription unless we actually pay attention to them and transcribe all of those details. And so that's why we get our level five students to transcribe those things in detail so that by paying attention to the way we communicate, they become much better students of human psychology and interaction. Mm -hmm. Because people can say the same sentence, mm -hmm. but in very different ways. Absolutely. And depending on how they say that sentence, mm -hmm. conveys a completely different meaning and Absolutely. emotional state. Absolutely. Things like sarcasm and humour are things which are conveyed through our tone of voice. Um, and we need to then pay attention to how those are actually communicated to other people. Mm. And is this something that you're mindful of when you conduct your own qualitative research and you maybe run in a, a focus group, um, a one-on-one semi-structured interview, mm. in the back of your mind, you're actually thinking to yourself, well, how has that pa participant expressed the thoughts rather than just looking at the words on a transcript. Absolutely. Um, I'm constantly thinking about how people are conveying what they're saying um, and not just the content of what they're saying. Uh, and that also makes me attentive to the fact that interviews and focus groups are not a neutral context, but they are a context in which people are trying to present themselves in certain ways, in which people are trying to attend to a task that you've given them to do. And so as researchers, we need to be aware of how the demands that we place in an interview context or a focus group context actually shapes the data that we get out of those. Mm. So that's not to say that they're wrong or they're inappropriate, but they, they aren't neutral. Mm. So what other teaching have you done during your time at Northumbria University that you would like to convey to the listeners? So other teaching alongside that discursive psychology is the work that, um, or the, the work that I've done in social psychology, mm. but that's more at master's level. Right. Um, where we've got a conversion master's course. Yeah. And I taught social psychology there for several years. And I really enjoyed that because social psychology is something which I'm just fascinated by, whether that's how people communicate online or whether that's social interaction and exploring that through discursive psychology or intergroup conflict. Social psychology covers 
a wide range of our lives mm. and that's something which has been a, a real focus of my research over the past 10 years and more yeah and, and obviously part of your time mm. here at Northumbria um you've been a program leader obviously we work together as program leaders yeah um i'm sure that came with its challenging but also rewarding aspects as well absolutely i really enjoyed my time as a program leader i find it very challenging but i really enjoyed working closely alongside the students and then because i had that for three years it meant at the end of those three years i was able to see the students that started and with me during the pandemic actually graduate and it was great to see how well it's mm. done so what what have you enjoyed about newcastle in general your time here in the northeast of england i have thoroughly enjoyed my time here in the northeast of england and i think one of the things that i've enjoyed most about northumbria is seeing it progress uh when i first came to northumbria uh, there was just starting to be a push towards making making it a research intensive university and over the past 10 years, I've really seen a marked emphasis on the importance of research and research-led teaching. And I think this is something which it can sound, it can sound very bureaucratic and just this emphasis on being a research-intensive university. But at the end of the day, it's valuable for the students because when students come along, they don't want to just listen to someone who's learned everything out of a book. Mm. They want to listen to people who've done their own research, who conduct research, who are actually passionate about studying the topics that they're teaching. And I think over the past years at Northumbria, we've seen this increasing move towards teaching staff who actually are actively involved in research. Mm. I think it's just lovely being able to look at the different modules that are being taught and see how staff are bringing their own research experience into the classrooms. Yeah, no, obviously uh, you're hoping to maintain your, your links with the department here and your collaborations that you've got going on. Absolutely, because I've enjoyed my time here in Northumbria so much. I'm looking forward to collaborations in the future with my many colleagues here at Northumbria. I moved back to Northern Ireland as simply prompted by family reasons. So. Mm -hmm. I will go with many fond memories of Northumbria and the Northeast as well. And finally, so what are your plans for when you actually start your your new role at Queen's University Belfast? My new role will be specifically focused on qualitative research in psychology. So that then opens up the possibility for me to actually to input into that department and to talk about the value of qualitative research and to get researchers to think about how qualitative research methods can actually be useful for their particular areas of interest and also introduce that more into the teaching as well at Queen's University Psychology. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity and looking forward to continue my own research as well in a variety of different areas but uh, particularly in areas relating to intergroup conflict and victimhood. Well, I, it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you, Daniel. to have worked alongside you for um, many years. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, we at Northumbria University wish you all of the very best um, in your new post at Queen's University Belfast. Thank you very much. And I wish you all the best as well and look forward to many years of collaboration in the future. Mm -hmm.